Now we're going to read from God's Word. We're reading this morning from Genesis chapter 20. As you're turning there, uh, I'll just give you a little invitation. Uh, Tonight, in the evening service, uh, we're going to have a a sermon. It's a mediocre, it's a normal sermon, but the topic is is anything but. Uh, The topic will be about sharing your faith, about evangelism. So if that's something you're especially wanting to hear more about, uh, that will be tonight in the, in the sermon tonight. Now, Genesis chapter 20. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And she, even she herself, said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed she truly is my sister. She is the daughter of my father but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. And thus she was vindicated. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech 
because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. As you read through the Bible, there's, there's one thing that you can see very clearly as you go through, through it from cover to cover. You see that the Bible depicts people who have flaws, people who have significant flaws. And, and you, you find as you go through it that God, he doesn't choose to work with the people who are flawless. God selects flawed people. God chooses to work with people who are even deeply flawed. And, and he works with us. And, and when you just think about what that means, that, that is very counterintuitive. For instance, when you've, when you've got kids who are playing soccer or playing football and they need to choose sides, choose teams so that they can play the game, who do they pick? Who do kids pick to be on their team? You don't pick deeply flawed players. You don't pick the kids who, who when they kick the ball, they, they kick funny. You don't pick the kids who, who tend to trip and fall for your team. You try to pick the players who have the fewest flaws. And, and, and not just picking teams for a kid's game, but when you are looking for a spouse, when you look for a spouse, you're considering someone to marry, isn't it the case that it is the flaws about the other potential person, it's the flaws that give you pause. If a person has a temper, that gives you pause. If, if the person seems to be overly obsessed with sports, watching sports, playing sports, that gives you pause. You hesitate to commit yourself to a flawed person. But it's the case that for almost every major figure in the Bible, you see in them, you see significant flaws. You, you've got Noah, and then you've got Noah's drunkenness. You, you've got Moses. And then you've got Moses' temper. He struck in anger. You've got Samson, that great judge and deliverer. But he wanted his women. And you've got David. David, who had a heart for God, but God also said, you're a man of blood. And here we have Abraham. Abraham is, is the father of the faith. He's, he's the patriarch. He's the father of the faith, but he's, he's flawed. Now, two of, two of Abraham's great flaws, his fear and his unbelief. His fear and his unbelief. And because of Abraham's fear and his unbelief, we find that Abraham lies. Abraham acts in a way that's just cowardly. And so Abraham's flaws and, and his sins, they, they bring trouble to many people. And so we see three things in our, our text today. We see that fear and unbelief trip others up. Fear and unbelief trip up others. And then secondly, we see that fear and unbelief threaten the plan of God. The threatens, fear and unbelief threaten God's plan. And then thirdly, we see that God shows mercy to the fearful and to the unbelieving. So let's first see how, how fear and unbelief, our fear and our unbelief, trip other people up. This chapter focuses on Abimelech, this king in the, in the southern regions of, of Palestine. And, and what we're going to see is how Abraham's fear and Abraham's unbelief trip 
up Abimelech. So verse 1, you've got Abraham, and you'll recall that Abraham is a prospering rancher. And he moves to the south, probably he's moving there just for better water access or for better pasturage. And verse 2, as Abraham and as Sarah migrate around through the territories, Abraham, it's just kind of weird, Abraham conceals the fact that he's married to Sarah. He conceals his marriage to Sarah. And, and so he deceives, he, he, he does it by telling a lie of sorts. It's a lie of sorts. He says, this woman who's traveling with us, this woman that you see me with, she is my sister. And at this point, you're wondering, okay, well, like, why, why would he do this? Why, why would Abraham pretend that he's unmarried? Why would he pretend that Sarah is not his wife? Well, it's, it's because of fear. It's because he is afraid. And so he lies. He lies about his marriage. No, why is he afraid? Why is he afraid? It's because Abraham fears that a more powerful man, like a king, like this king, or, or like the king of Egypt, this happened once before already in Genesis 12, he fears that some more powerful man will kill him, will kill Abraham in order to take Abraham's beautiful wife or in order to take possession of, of their resources. And so he, he, he fears that he, he will be killed so that the powerful man can get his wife, or he fears that his wife will be killed so that uh, removing Abraham and then taking this woman, that king, that powerful man, will receive the wealth of their estate to get their financial and their economic holdings. And so here, back in the south, just like back in Egypt, Abraham lies. He lies because he's afraid. He's afraid for his life. Verse 11, he says, they will kill me on account of my wife. But his thinking is this. But if, if these, these desert warlords consider me to be Sarah's brother, if they see me as a brother, then they will court me. But if they consider me Sarah's husband, they will kill me. And so what you've got here in, in the mind of Abraham is he feels vulnerable. Abraham's an immigrant, and, and maybe to some extent he's justified because you can even remember in the previous chapter when we were reading about Sodom and Gomorrah, the way that the locals in Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they were willing to savage and even despoil outsiders. And so Abraham feels unsafe. He feels insecure, and, and he fears for his own life. Now, do you see here, though, how his fear, how his fear leads to lying? We know what that's like. We know what that's like even at, like a, at, a, at a very small level. Some, someone may ask you, what are you looking at on your phone? But you're ashamed to admit it. You're ashamed and you're afraid of being caught, so you just you lie about what you were looking at on the screen. You say, nothing, I'm, I, I'm just reading stuff. Or, or kids, you're, you're, you're goofing off in the kitchen, and, and you know what it means to be afraid, and then there's that pressure to lie. Maybe you're goofing off and you break a glass, you break a plate. Parents come in and they say, who broke this? What's going on? Who broke this? And you're afraid. You're afraid of getting in trouble, and so you lie. You say something like, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. And Abraham's lie, it's, it's a very certain flavor of lie. It's a half-truth. It's a partial truth. Later, verse 12, Abraham says, this thing I said about my wife, about Sarah, Sarah truly is my sister. She's the daughter of my father. 
but not the daughter of my mother. So Sarah is either a half-sister to Abraham, same father, but different mothers, or maybe Sarah is an adopted sister to Abraham. Maybe they have totally different parents, but just in the ways of of life, uh, Abraham's father married a widow who already had a daughter, Sarah, and so he adopted her, and he's her father. But whatever the case, this is a half-truth. This is a half-truth. Sarah is not fully Abraham's sister, and whether or not she's a half-sister or an adoptive sister, Sarah is Abraham's wife. His half-truth has the effect of a full lie. So, now, I don't, I don't want you all to hear this and just start getting all tangled up about half lies and full lies. It's the motive that is the key, the meaning, the intention. Abraham intended, he intended to mislead with his half lie. Abraham wanted to deceive the public about his marriage as he migrated through the territories. And so, so you look at how fear, how our fear and how our lies trip other people up. How our fears cause other people to stumble. Verse 2, Abimelech, this regional king, he believes Abraham's deception. He, he completely swallows it. And he takes Sarah. He, he, he removes her from living, from the caravan of Abraham. And he takes her into his power in order to make her his wife or to, to make her part of his harem. And then verse 3, it says God confronts Abimelech in Abimelech's sleep. In a dream. And God says to this powerful man, he says, you are a dead man. You have taken another man's wife, Abimelech. And so just in passing, we see that adultery in the eyes of God, it is a serious moral crime. Now, Abimelech says, this is not fair. This is not fair. On two counts, this is not fair. God, you know, you know I have not touched that woman. And then secondly, God, you know that I did not know that she was married. And so verse 6, God says, I know. I know that in your heart, Abimelech, I know that you did not know that she was married. And I also know that you did not touch her. But the only reason, God says, the only reason that you didn't touch her was that I restrained you from sinning against me. And so what you've got here just in this little microcosm of an example is you see this elegant tension between God's total control over all the actions of human beings, whether they are mighty or whether they're minuscule. God's total control over our actions and this tension with our total responsibility for our actions. You've got divine determinism and you've got human free will. Both of them here held in tension. Abimelech bears responsibility for his sinful actions. But we also hear, very clearly, God restrains sinful actions. He restrains our sinful actions. And so this is, this is a tension. It's not a full explanation. So what, we take, what do we take from this? Here's one thing you can take from this. Thank God that he restrains our sin. Thank God that he restrains sin. Why? Why have I, to this state, why have I not done something insanely idiotic in my lusts? Why have I, to this date, not done something insanely foolish in my pride, worse than I've already done? Why today am I not on the run from law enforcement 
it's only the restraining grace of God. And so we can just thank God that he restrains our own sins. Now, this leads to an interesting question, and it's, it's a useful question. Is accidental sin wrong? Is accidental sin wrong? Is unintentional sin wrong? Are you guilty? In, in the case of Abimelech, are you guilty if you, if you marry someone, but you had no idea that the person was presently married? Are you guilty? Well, here's another way to frame it. If you are driving 60 miles an hour, you're driving 60 miles an hour, and you didn't realize that you were driving 60 miles an hour, and you also didn't know that the speed limit was 35, can you get a speeding ticket? Yes, you can. And will that ticket stand? Yes, the ticket will stand. And, and, and you know, another example, if you kill another person, but you didn't intend to kill the person, it was an accident. Maybe you meant to hit them, but you didn't mean to kill them. Are you guilty of a crime? Yes, you're guilty of a crime. It's, it's called manslaughter. You're guilty of manslaughter, which is considered legally a form of homicide. And, and how about this? If you, if you hurt someone with a careless word, if you hurt somebody with a, a thoughtless joke, if you hurt someone unintentionally, are you still guilty? Yes, you've wounded them. You might say, but, but I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to hurt you. I wasn't intending to attack you when I said that. Can't you just say, can't you just say, I'm sorry. I see that I hurt you with my words. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Well, verse 7, God tells Abimelech, you did not commit adultery, but you did a great wrong. And it was a great wrong that was worthy of death. And so God tells Abimelech, give Sarah back to her husband, ask Abraham to pray for you. Give her back, ask him to pray for you. He says, make restitution for taking this man's wife and then request forgiveness from the person whom you wronged. Now that's a pattern for for all of us. That's a pattern for all of us to follow. Don't minimize. Don't minimize your sin. Maybe you didn't commit adultery, technically. Maybe you didn't steal, technically. Maybe you didn't intend to hurt someone. That's fine. And God recognizes that. But maybe you did sin. And so now make it right. Pay it back. And, and even request forgiveness from the person that you wronged. If you need to, do it in front of people. Do it publicly if needed. And look at how Abraham's fear and his lie, which have tripped up Abimelech, his lie about the wife, Abraham's lie about the wife, denying his marriage bond to Sarah. See how he tripped up Abimelech in doing that. Verse 9, Abimelech says to Abraham, you have brought on me, you have brought on my kingdom a great sin. You have done deeds to me, Abimelech says, that ought not have been done. What did you have in view, Abraham, that you have done this thing? So, so now let's turn. He's asking, 
Abimelech is asking Abraham, why did you do this? Let's turn now from Abimelech's sin, his unintentional sin, let's turn from Abimelech's sin to Abraham's unbelief. Abraham's fear leads to Abraham's lie. So Abraham has fear, and that leads to his lie, but what is behind Abraham's fear? What's behind his fear? Let's spend just a little bit of time looking at that. Behind Abraham's fear is Abraham's unbelief. So you've got this little chain. Um, If fear leads to lies, what you see is one step back, unbelief leads to fear. So you've got lies that are caused by fear, and you have fear that is caused by unbelief. Back in Genesis 12, 3, here's where the unbelief comes in. Back in, in, in Genesis 12, verse 3, God had promised Abraham, promised from God to Abraham, I will bless your allies and I will curse your enemies. It was just blanket statement. It's echoed in other places like, like Isaiah 54. No weapon formed against you will prosper. God will not, God will not let true harm come to his people. And so you, believer, you may find that life is very scary, right? Now you may enter into battle and and you may find that you are sustaining terrible losses. But body and soul, you belong to God. And no one can take the Lord from you. No matter what happens to you, nobody can take the Lord from you. And, and nothing, nothing can happen to you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And nobody, nobody can make you sin. And as surely as Christ is risen from the dead, you are going to be raised. Whatever you're going through now, you are going to be raised to live forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's really true for you? That the person who is threatening your security right now and the person who is threatening your well-being, that they can't truly harm you or take from you what you really need and what really matters. Do you really believe that the lack of money that you face and, and that the deadlines that are approaching, they can't take away the true safety and the real blessing of the Christian That no weapon formed against you, whether it's cancer or whether it's career loss or some kind of conflict, that any of those will prosper. Do you believe that? Abraham struggled to believe that. And in his unbelief, he feared. And in Abraham's unbelief and fear, he lied and he made a mess for all the people around him. He made a mess for Sarah. He made Sarah vulnerable. He set her up so that she could be taken into the home of a king to be brought into his harem. He didn't defend his wife. He didn't protect his own wife. He set her up to be taken into the house of Abimelech. And he made a mess not only for Sarah, he made a mess for Abimelech. Abimelech almost committed adultery and God confronts him with death. And not only Abimelech, he made a mess for Abimelech's people. Verse 7, God says, you shall surely die, Abimelech, you and all who are yours. What a mess, not just for Abimelech, but for everyone in his household. The word, the Bible tells us that the bill for sin is death. 
The wages of sin is death. And so in verse 18, it also brought infertility to all the women in the household of Abimelech. That was the mess, part of the mess that Abraham's lie caused for all these other people. You see how Abraham's unbelief and fear tripped up so many people. And, and this is a principle. It still works out. It still happens today. Consider your own fears. Consider your own fears, the things that are keeping you awake in the middle of the night, worried, thinking, going, ruminating about over and over, the thing, the thing that, that overdrives you, the thing that causes you to put in too many hours, the thing that takes up too much of your emotional focus. Two questions that you can ask yourself about that. First of all, how has your fear, how has your fear affected the people around you? How has your fear affected the people around you? You've got the, the parent who works too much because he worries too much. I, I, the parent would say, I, I was so intent on providing for my family. I was so scared and, and I was so intent on providing for my family that I neglected my family. I thought that insane work hours would provide what my family needed but it turns out by doing that, I'm not around enough to build our relationships. Or, or maybe this is how your fear affects the people around you. In my fear, in my constant churning of worry, I'm pressurized and I'm impatient and I lash out at the small people. I lash out at the children, the little people in my life. I'm just preoccupied. I'm, I'm emotionally absent because I'm so worried because of my fear. So first question, how has your fear affected the people around you? Secondly, what have you stopped believing about God? What have you stopped believing about God? I'm anxious. I'm afraid. What am I functionally doubting about God? What what does my fear reveal that I actually believe about God? Abraham feared, you could call them bullies. He feared bullies would come and beat him up. That fear of Abraham's, that fear revealed something that he believed or that he disbelieved about God, that the bullies were bigger than God. He stopped believing that God would provide and that God would protect. Or sometimes we stop believing this. Our fears reveal this. Our fears reveal that we have stopped believing that God is good and that God is wise. And so when our car breaks down, and we, we panic, and, and we're, we're afraid and worried about it because our car is broken down. We think God does not have anything good or wise going on. God is irrelevant. Or, or sometimes we, we stop believing this. We stop believing that God cares for me the way a good father would care for a child. And so we despair when setbacks come up. We, we despair when, when we don't get the position, we don't get the promotion, and and, and we view all of these reversals with an unshakable pessimism. Do you come at life and you look at something that looks like, oh, it looks like a downturn? Do you come at it and you interpret it and you're insistent that you're going to be pessimistic in how you view it? What have you stopped believing about God? What have you stopped believing about God? Just one more thing about this. When we mistrust God, when we are mistrusting God, we start to mistrust people. See how that works out here. Verse 11, Abraham is thinking, he gets to this place in the south in Gerar. He says, 
because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. He acted the way he did because he had a mistrust of God. Abraham did not trust God and his suspicions about God made him suspicious of the people in the community. And so Abraham started assigning motives, assigning motives incorrectly to all these people. Abraham wrongly assumes that these people have no fear of God. Well, the truth is, they actually have a pretty healthy fear of God. All it takes is a dream. And Abimelech and all the people, they are scared. They have a fear of the Lord. And Abraham assumes that these people will kill him. That was nothing, that was nothing near the truth. He, again, he read them wrong. Abraham brings his prejudices about God and he applies his prejudices to people. It causes all kinds of trouble for everyone when he does that. The way that you view people, maybe is it a reflection of how you view God? For example, to you, is the reality that to you, God is not reliable? That God is absent when you really need him to be present? Well, if that's in truth your view of God, Maybe that's why you don't trust people. Maybe that's why you expect that people are just going to disappoint you. You've got trust issues. And maybe it's because you've actually got trust issues, not with people, but trust issues with God. Maybe that's why you have difficulty keeping stable, personal relationships. Or to you, is, is this your view of God? Is God stern, very fast to correct? Is, is God impatient? Is God fault Finding. Is, that, is that the main angle at which you think God views you and treats you? Well, maybe that's, maybe could that be why you, you so often misread people coming to you as people attacking you and, and, and you find that you're criticizing and suspecting people's motives even when it's not there. So someone asks you, someone asks you did, did you finish cleaning out that space yet? Have you finished? Are you almost done with that project? And, and you just you blow up. And you think, why are you always on my case? What are, you, what are you accusing me of? What do you actually think about me? Why don't you respect me? And the truth is, they were just wondering if the project's almost done. Period. There was nothing in there. Can, can you see how our fear and how our unbelief trip other people up? So, fear and unbelief trip people up. Next, fear and unbelief threaten God's plan. And we'll just look at this briefly. Fear and unbelief also threaten God's plan. It's not just that our fear and our unbelief affect other people. Our fear and our unbelief also threaten God's plan. You remember the context here. Abraham is the beneficiary of this covenant commitment from God. Abraham's true son, part of this is that his true son is going to be a people a nation that will bring the good of God to the entire planet. And it's all on this son, this promised son. And Abraham is is now very close. He's less than a year away from the arrival of this son, from seeing the birth of his true biological son of promise. But do you see how Abraham's fears and Abraham's doubts They threaten now, by this lie, they threaten to derail the promised son. It does it this way, because because if 
if Abimelech, because of the lie that Abraham told him, if Abimelech would take Sarah and even give the appearance of having slept with Sarah, the legitimacy of Sarah's son and and Abraham's son, if it is his son, it would all now be in question. And he's this close to the arrival of his biological son. Abraham's doubt and Abraham's lie could sabotage the son for whom they have been waiting for 25 years now. The consequences of Abraham's unbelief affect his wife, affect his community, and even affect his future family. Abraham was so selfishly focused on himself and and his, his trust in God had reduced to such a small point that he was in danger of capsizing all the good that God had promised and was working. And so he didn't walk in faith. He didn't promote his marriage to Sarah in faith. He feared, he lied, and he pressured his wife to lie. That's in here also. And, and do you see that fathers, you, you, you who are fathers here, you who are husbands here, do you see how your selfishness, how your unbelief, your concern for your own welfare, do you see how it can sabotage your marriage? Do you see how it can sabotage your kids? And, and as you see it, because we will, we will stumble. We will lie at times because we're afraid, because we're not believing God. Can, can, as we do that, can we confess the way Abraham was pressured to confess? Can we confess to our wives? Can we confess that we have overvalued our selfish comfort, our selfish desires, instead of valuing the welfare of our wife, of our kids? Can we confess that, fathers and husbands? And, and parents, can we, as parents, moms and dads, can we confess to our children that we struggle with this? Can we confess that we personally struggle to trust God, to trust that God is good in all of our daily decisions, in all of the daily setbacks that come? Can we confess to our kids that we're struggling to trust God, to believe him? Can we confess to our children that we have spoken in fear instead of faith? Can, can, we, can we admit to our kids that we struggle to trust God for our security? Can we admit that we're looking? Can we admit to our kids, I am looking for security somewhere other than God. I am struggling to look for security in God. Instead, I'm looking for security somewhere else. I'm looking for security in success, in status, in something else. I'm struggling with it. Can you just tell your kids as you process, that's what's going on with me? Can we admit when we do what we do Can we admit to others that we do it because we love ourselves more than we love the people around us? Can we admit that? King Abimelech pressures Abraham to admit, to confess, to confess his fears, to confess his false motivations, to admit his deception, to to admit his rationalizations. Are Are you willing? Are you willing to admit to the court the ways that you have wandered? Are you willing to admit to your kids the ways that you have wandered? By his fears and by his faithlessness, Abraham threatens to wreck his own family and the plans of God for his family. When I, when I was a kid, I remember a time that 
my little brother and I, we were swimming in the deep end at the pool, at the Y. We were, we were just happily paddling around in the deep end together. And, and he was holding on to a basketball with his arms and he was, he was kicking with his legs. But as, as we were playing and as he was paddling, he lost his grip on the ball. And, and then suddenly he wasn't floating, being held up by the ball and he panicked and he started thrashing and splashing and, and he started going down. And, and in his fear, he grabbed me because I was next to him. He grabbed me and we both started to sink. And he knew how to swim. I knew how to swim. But in his fear, he forgot. He forgot to swim. He forgot he knew how to swim. He grabbed me and pulled me under. And as we both struggled below the surface, his fear started to pull me under and to drown me as well. Our fears affect others. And I'll also say this about that incident. To this day, I feel some level of grief and some level of guilt for what I did. Because I remember, as he was pulling me down, I remember panicking. And I remember kicking him, kicking him off me, kicking hard as he was dragging both of us under the surface. I had to get him off of me so that we could both swim to the surface. Now, we we see how fear and unbelief trip others up. We see how fear and unbelief threaten God's plan. But finally, we see this. God shows mercy to the fearful and to the unbelieving. God shows mercy. We started by, we started by noting that Abraham here, he is hardly heroic. He's deeply flawed, and, and his flaws stem from his difficulty in trusting God. How can you, but how can you trust God? How can you trust God when things feel terrifying? How can you trust God when you're afraid? How can you live in faith, not, not in fear? It's when you see Jesus in the gospel. At the center of this account, you've got Abraham. Abraham, who's a self-regarding man who's afraid that he would die if he acknowledged his wife. He's a man who's afraid that they will kill him if he acknowledges his wife. In the gospel, Jesus knew it would kill him, but he refused to deny you. You can trust Jesus when you are afraid because Jesus had every reason to be afraid and to deny you. All the disciples denied Jesus, fled in fear, but Jesus would not deny us. To the very end, Jesus gave up his life for us. It says in the word, though we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. He cannot deny you. The gospel tells you that Jesus Christ loved you, loved you, so that he will not deny you, even if it means losing his life. You can trust him because of his strong love. You see the strength of his love here. He would pay everything to vindicate your name. He's willing to pay anything and everything to vindicate your name. He loves you that much. In this account, Abimelech pays for Sarah 1,000 talents of silver. It says he pays 1,000 talents of silver to clear her good name. If you do the calculation, 1,000 talents of silver was more than a year's wages. It was more than a lifetime of wages. Jesus prizes you so much. 
He would pay a lifetime of labor to clear your name. By his death on the cross, he took our name and our blame, and he gives us his righteousness and his good name. What will push out the fear you have? What will push out your mistrust and your suspicion about God? The certain, the certain love of a strong and a loyal man. He loved you. He loved you. Can you love him? Can you trust him? You can. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you took people who are disreputable and you paid everything to establish a good reputation for us. We trust that our sins are covered and cleansed by Jesus. We trust that Jesus' perfect life has given us a good name before the Father and the Judge. And we trust and believe that we will not die for our sins and that you will not let any harm, any weapon formed against us do us harm. And so, Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that we would be convinced of your strong love for us. We ask that you would cause us to walk in faith and to put aside our fear and our unbelief. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.